Father, my heart is just swimming with so many things that I want to pray about right now. I wish we had another hour in this service to just pray and pray. But I just have to mention a couple things, Father. I want to lift up Seiji before you, Father, the Japanese man working at the Baraka house. His family's still in Japan, and I don't know what the state of his family is. I know he's concerned, but I haven't heard the latest, and I just want to lift him up. Father, pray that you would comfort him. Pray that you would uh, cause him to go before the throne and plead with you for the spread of the gospel in Japan. I thank you that his family knows you and that they've spent their lives ministering to others in your name, both in India and in Japan. And Father, I pray that now in their time of need that you would stretch out your hand and minister to his family, but also that you would empower them to preach the gospel there, Father. And I do pray that the church around the world would rise up now, Father, in Tokyo's great time of need, and that we would go to that country in great numbers with the love of Jesus Christ and with the word of Jesus Christ on our lips. Father, I pray that we would see the day in our lifetimes when Japan is no longer an atheistic nation, but where it becomes more and more of a Christian nation. You did this in South Korea, Father. There was a time when hardly anybody there believed, and now it's one of the great lights, pillars of hope in Christianity in the world. In just a very short time, Father, the largest church in the world is now in South Korea, and more missionaries are being sent from South Korea than any country in the world but the United States, and you can do that in Japan, Father. And I pray that you would. I pray that you'd use tragedy to bring hope and deep and lasting hope. And Father, I do just want to pray once more about Baraka House for Alex. Father, I want to pray that our journey there would be a blessing to her. Father, I pray that it would be an encouragement to her. I pray that she would know in the depths of her soul that this church is standing with her and that we love her and that we're with her. Father, break through, I pray, confusion and darkness and help her, Father, to see the beauty of what you're doing in connecting Baraka House with glory of Christ. And again, I pray that the end of the, at the end of the day that the meaning of that would be that your name would spread forth like wildfire both here and in India. We trust you for this. Now, Father, I want to ask you to be with me as I preach. Please, Father, give me the appropriate boldness and humility. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us as a people to pray. God, this is not about a season of life in, the, in this church. This is about life in Christ for all time. And so, God, in these days, I pray that you would teach us to pray for all days. I trust you, Father, and I trust in your word. And I give myself to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the book of Acts and we saw there a, a crucial pattern that emerged in the life of the early church and that has lasted in the life of every true church from that time to this time, namely that before the church goes out into the world on mission, that we have to go up to the throne of God together for power in prayer. Uh, specifically, we saw that the pattern looks something like this. I put a little chart for you up on the PowerPoint. It starts off with communal prayer as the church prays together, and then as we pray together, the Holy Spirit grants us His power. And then as the Holy Spirit grants us His power, we go out into the world in bold mission. If you look in the book of Acts, almost every time the Holy Spirit came upon the people, sometimes they spoke in tongues, sometimes not, but almost every time they got boldness for witness and for mission. And in fact, the gift of tongues was in about tongues, if you read the book of Acts carefully, you'll see that the gift of tongues was about the, the mission of the church spreading into the world. It was about the Word of God coming with power into the world. So the Holy Spirit coming with power upon the people eventuated for them in boldness and mission. 
As they went out and preached the gospel boldly, many people came to Christ. And as they came to Christ, they all went back to the throne of God together in worship. So we see this pattern. It repeats again and again and again in the book of Acts. Because I think Luke is trying to teach us that this is about a way of life. This is not just something that happened in that church way back then. This is something that happens in every church through all time that is truly on mission with Jesus. Beloved, there are other ways to grow churches. There are ways to attract people and keep people and all, and all of that. But there is no other way to bear the genuine fruit of the Holy Spirit but by going to God in prayer together and receiving the power from the throne for the mission that He has given to us. Now the reason this pattern is relevant to us right now is because of what the Lord is doing in the life of our church. The elders recently articulated our mission as follows. Glory of Christ Fellowship exists to make disciples of all nations by living lives of worship, walking together in community, and engaging in the mission of Christ that we may grow to full maturity for the glory of Christ. So to put it briefly, this church is about worship, it's about community, and it's about mission. I said last week that in the last several years we've come a long way with regard to worship and community. We have a long way to go, but we have grown a lot. We've come a long way. The, the basic structures for these things are in the life of our church now. But when it comes to mission, we have a lot of growing to do, particularly as that relates to local mission and evangelism and mercy ministry. And so we believe as elders that it's time for us to begin pushing into the community and sharing the gospel with more consistency and more boldness. And, and we have to begin that outward movement by first going upward to the Lord in prayer because that's just how it works. You cannot be on mission with Jesus without being a people of prayer. That's just all there is to it. Now, I know that in the life of this church, there's people who are deeply prayerful. I told you last week I have been a personal recipient of many of those prayers, and that's true. This morning I was thinking about many situations I also know about where one person in this body was hurting, and, and even to this day, you don't even know that someone else in this body fasted and prayed for you on a regular basis. I just happened to find out through conversation or through whatever means. But I know for a fact that there are people in this church who are deep and serious and regular intercessors. I know that for a fact. And I don't mean for these sermons to come across like, like that I or the elders think that this church is prayerless, because that's not true. Prayerlessness is not our issue here at all. What this time of life at Glory of Christ is about, though, is learning to pray together. Being intercessors is a great thing, but we have to learn the beauty, the power, the pattern of praying together and how God has designed that to work. So with all of that in mind, what I want to do this morning is go to just one verse today. I want to preach it in its context, but we'll deal with just one verse, Colossians 4.2. So if you'll please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. I'll say a few things about that. And then I just want to say a couple of words about the season of Lent and the, and the celebration of Easter and how that ties into the, the movement of prayer in the life of our church. I want to begin my comments on Colossians 4.2 by actually going to the beginning of chapter 3. So if you'll look there, you'll see that Paul begins chapter 3 by laying out a vision of what life in Christ is like for those who believe in Him. And specifically, here's what he writes. If then... You have been raised with Christ, then think, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. 
that word if there in verse 1 is there in the Greek. It does say if, but it's re- written in Greek in such a way that it really means since. And any of you who are reading the NIV, you'll see that they actually translate it that way. They say, since you have been raised up with Christ. And Paul's point here is to say that we who know Jesus Christ, who have believed in Him by grace through faith, are so deeply connected with Him that we have actually participated in His resurrection. I don't know if you've ever really slowed down to think about that, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've come to know Him by grace through faith, the Bible teaches that you have participated in His resurrection. You have been raised to life with Christ because you have become one with Christ. And because of this fact, Paul says that we should lift up our eyes to Christ and that we should fix our minds on Christ, that we should set ourselves on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth because Jesus Christ is there. He's not here. And the things of this earth no longer control our life on the earth, but the things of heaven control our life on the earth. In fact, when we believed in Jesus Christ in a very real way, we died. One time when I was in college, I was on a prayer day up in the mountains, and I decided to have a funeral for myself. And I did. It was to teach myself that I have died. The Charlie Handron that used to exist before I came to know Christ no longer exists on this earth. He is gone. He is dead. And I literally had a service and and mourned that man and gave myself to Christ to live to Christ. You might as well have a funeral for yourself if you believe in Jesus because the Bible teaches that you have died and now your true life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we who believe in Him will also appear with Him in glory. Now that's stunning. Our unity with Jesus is so deep and so real and so serious that when He comes back to the earth in glory, the Bible says from one side of the sky to the other, He will light it up and every eye will see Him. Every ear will hear Him. He will come in power with the angels of heaven. And when He comes, beloved, we will be there with Him. We will appear with Him in glory. You ever slow down to let that sink in? You are so united to Christ that when He comes, it will not be an impersonal experience for you, but you will be there with Him because He's your Father. Wherever He is, there you are. Right now He's in heaven. Your life is hidden with Him. When He comes and appears in the sky, you will be there with Him. Because all of these things are true, Paul says to us, lift up your eyes. Fix your minds on Jesus. Seek Jesus in all of your life. Let go of the things of this world. Live your, live your life in the light of Christ because you are deeply, profoundly, eternally united with Him. So with all of that in mind, with that vision of life in mind, Paul goes on in verses 5-11 through 11 to encourage us to put to death the earthly things that remain in us. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene, filthy talk, and lying. And the reason that Paul tells us to put these things off is because they're they're not characteristic of the Lord who saved us. And so they're not becoming of those of us who've become united with Him. Jesus isn't like that, so don't be like that. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. You have great eternal hope, so don't live for the sensuous, fleshly things of this world. Just let them go. Let them go. Then in verses 
12 through 17, Paul tells us to do something else. He says, put other things on. Take those things off. Do away with those things. But put other things on. Things like this. Compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, patience, and forgiveness. And above all things, put on love. Live lives of love. That song that the worship team sung at the beginning of the service is true. Without love, we're nothing. So put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the reason for this is because these kinds of things characterize Jesus who saved us. He's like this. He's, we've been seeing so much in, in the last several weeks here how merciful He is, how gracious He is, how patient and kind and forbearing He is. And now Paul is saying, since He's like that and you're connected with Him, be like Him. Be like your Father. Put off the things of this world and put on the things of your Father because you are in fact deeply connected with Him by grace through faith. And so Paul concludes there, if you look in verse 17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, any single thing you do in this life, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Live a way of life. Beloved, Paul is not, in these verses, just setting before us a whole list of things that we have to do. It's not a new law. It's not a new to-do list. What he's trying to do is paint a picture for us of what life looks like in Christ. When you are profoundly, relationally, communally connected with Christ, life looks like this. Put off earthly things, put on heavenly things. Be in the world, but not of the world. Live your whole life with a fullness of hope of the things that are to come, not the things that are here. Don't live your life for the American dream. It's a fading dream. Live your life for the kingdom dream, because that is an eternal, eternal dream. Paul is encouraging us here not to keep rules, but to enter into communion with Christ. That's what's on his mind. That's what's on his heart. He's thinking about the the depth of passion and connection and communion we have with the Lord. And he's encouraging us in that way. So in light of that, he goes on in verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, to say some specific things to wives, to husbands, to fathers, to children, and to slaves and masters, or to put it in our terms, employees and employers. And then he simply says this in verse chapter 4, verse 2. Small sentence, very profound sentence. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There's a world of meaning in those few words. This verse about 15 or 16 years ago became very near and dear to my heart. It's become a real life verse for me. I preached on this one verse in my senior sermon when I graduated from seminary some years ago in front of all the faculty and students there. It marked my ministry when I was in California. It's marked my life from that moment to this moment. And I count it such a privilege to be able to unfold it a little bit for you. And I just want to tell you there are literally worlds of meaning here. And I pray that God would give us insight, not not just in our minds, but like in the way that we live our lives here together as, as a body. So let me just point out four or five things. First of all, I want to talk about what Paul means by the word prayer here. In the Greek language, the word prayer means basically exactly what it means in English. All prayer means is talking to God or giving requests to God. Sometimes the word is used for the one and only God. Sometimes it's used for other gods. But the point is that prayer is simply talking to God. Paul knew that and and we know that. But in the context of the book of Colossians and really of of all Paul's writings, he thinks of it in, in much more profound ways than just speech. 
He thinks of it as more than just a duty or more than a, a sort of magic that we use to get things out of God. Let me say a few things about what I mean by that. First of all, about duty. Paul does not see prayer as something that Christians are now obligated to do because we've come, become Christians. Please don't hear Paul saying or don't hear me saying that now you have just another thing to do in your long list of to-dos now that you're in Christ. You must do this, you must do that, you must do this, you must do that, and you also must pray. It's a duty of Christians. Muslims pray very much along the lines of duty. They don't pray to connect with God. That's not what they're about. That's not their heart. It's not their mind for prayer. It's not their habit. All they're doing is performing a duty five times a day. Paul, the Bible, the elders of this church do not think about prayer that way. Paul had much too much of a relational vision of the kingdom of God to think about prayer in such superficial terms. Neither does Paul think about prayer as a sort of magic. And what I mean is, when you, when you go before the Lord and say the right words in just the right way, and then boom, out pops the answer, out pops the blessing. Prayer does not work that way. You can't say a number of Our Fathers or a number of Hail Marys or a number of whatevers whatever you would want to say, and think that that's going to gain you favor with God. Jesus Himself said, don't be like the Gentiles who vainly repeat sentences over and over again, thinking that the vain repetition of those words is going to get them a hearing with God in prayer. Prayer doesn't work like that. It's not magic. It's not like a vending machine. You know, you put in certain words and boom, out pop certain answers. It's not like that. Paul has much too relational a vision of God and Christ to come out with an idea like that. So, Paul's vision, and in the mind of God, in the mind of Paul, God is not at a great distance from us. You see, when you think about prayer like duty or like magic, your basic assumption is that God is very distant from you, and somehow you have to bridge the gap between you and Him through prayer. But that's not Paul's vision at all. It's not the Bible's vision. In the vision of the Bible, those who believe in Christ are intimately close to Christ. He dwells with us. He walks with us. In fact, the Bible teaches that He literally lives inside the physical bodies of every single believer. Whether you feel it or not, or think it or not, beloved, if you've believed in Christ, He's closer to you than you could imagine. He's closer to you than your very breath, because by His Holy Spirit, He's literally dwelling inside of you. So when you take that sort of relational, communal context in mind, you see that what prayer is is simply a loving dependence from a child upon a father. Prayer is the communication that happens between the God who saved us and the children we've become. He's our Father and He loves us and we love Him. That's why we pray. Prayer is about love. Prayer is about relationship. Prayer is about communion with God. Oh, how I pray and I've been praying that we would, that that lesson would sink in deeply to the hearts and minds of this church. We pray because God is our Father and He loves us and we love Him. We don't pray out of a a sense of duty. We don't pray because we, we have programs to cause us to pray. We don't pray because it's magic. We pray because God is our Father and we long to do life with Him. We, we long to have intimacy with Him. In our day, it's become popular to say that prayer is a a two-way conversation, that we should both talk to God and listen to God, and there's some truth to that, but I want to give a little bit of correction to that, because there are people out there that are basically encouraging you to sit silently in prayer, and, and to just listen for words to come from the Lord, in a sort of unattached to the Bible kind of way, and I'm nervous about that, so I just want to say 
a couple of words. I do believe that prayer is a conversation, that it's a two-way street. But what stabilizes God's side of the conversation is the Bible. You can't just sit silent in prayer and expect the Lord to speak to you with any kind of clarity at all. Because He doesn't work that way. He speaks to us through His Word. I uh, Just about every single day of my life, I get up in the morning, I go to the Word, I open it up, I ask God to speak to me, and I just begin to read the Bible. I don't have a particular agenda, I just begin to read it. And as I read it, I pray back to God. Then I read some more and I pray back to God. And I read some more and I pray back to God. And at some point I do sit in silence and just let the Lord speak to me. I do wait on Him. I I do give Him space to speak into my life. I try not to fill my quiet time with too much noise. When When you're so busy in your quiet time, you can't stop to hear the Lord. So I do agree that there's a place for silence in the life of prayer with the Lord. I totally agree with that. But what I'm saying is the thing that stabilizes God's side of the conversation is His Word. When you're hearing from the Lord through the Word, you can know for a fact that you're hearing from God, right? When you're hearing sentences come out of the air, how do you know that that's from God? I've heard so many people tell me, Jesus is telling me to do this, or Jesus is telling me to do that, and then you see Him do it, and it's a disaster. How do you know Jesus is telling you to do X, Y, or Z, except by the Word? And the Holy Spirit speaks to you by the Word, and He will do that for anybody who will listen. It's very powerful. So I want to encourage us as a, as a body to envision prayer this way. It is a conversation between a father and his children. I completely agree with that. Oh, to the depths of my soul, I agree with that. I live by that every day of my life. But the way it works is that God speaks to us through the Word. We breathe the Word back to Him by prayer. And this kind of creates an atmosphere in our souls. It trains our inner ears so that we know how God thinks. We know how He feels about various situations. And then when we're walking through the things of life, we can talk to Him with with a kind of spiritual wisdom and knowledge because we're familiar with His Word. So, again, prayer is about communion with God. It's about relationship with God. It's not a duty. It's not magic. It's all about relationship. As a child and a father, speak to one another through the Word and then by, by prayer. With that kind of vision of prayer in mind, Paul goes on and actually begins verse 2 with a, with a very strong word that I want to draw your attention to. The ESV translates it, continue steadfastly. The NASB and the NIV both translate it, devote. And I actually prefer that latter translation because I, I feel like it gets something of the strength of this word in Greek. It's a very strong word. It means, beloved, make a life of prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Pray all the time. When you wake up in the morning, pray. When you're getting ready for work, pray. Talk to the Father. When you're having breakfast together as a family, pray. As you go about your day, go your separate ways and do the things you have to do, pray. As you're driving down the road, pray. When you're at work, pray. When you're having lunch, pray. When you're happy, pray. When you're sad, pray. When you're up, pray. When you're down, pray. When you're alone, pray. When you're together, pray. Make a life of prayer. Pray as often as you breathe. Devote yourselves to prayer. Make a life of it, not as a duty, but as communion with your Father. Learn to live your life in light of who He is and what He's doing and talk to Him all the time about everything. About everything. I'm certain that this is what's in Paul's mind. He said it in other places. Ephesians 6.18. Steve read that for us this morning. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Philippians 4. He said don't worry about anything at all. 
But in everything, at all times, pray, 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 pray. And as you pray, the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Probably most famously, he said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. You ever really stop to think about that? Let that sink in? Pray constantly. Pray all the time. Pray and never stop. Pray as often as you breathe. Pray, 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 pray. Devote yourselves to prayer. This is Paul's passion for us because it was his passion in his own life and he knows what life in Christ was like. Now, beloved, those words might seem impossible to you. It might seem like a standard just too high for you to reach. But I want to encourage you that it's not. If you begin to envision prayer as relationship with God, you will come to see that talking with your father is the most natural thing that you could do. When I was a kid, I loved my daddy so much. He was my hero, and it was no chore for me to talk to him about anything and everything. I was constantly chattering to him about this and that all the time. It was my joy to spend time with my daddy and talk with him. Prayer is just like that. It's not a duty. It's the joy of a child in all circumstances of life to talk to him about everything. That's all Paul is trying to encourage us to, beloved. It's not another list of to-dos. It's communion. He's saying, come and walk with your father. Do life with your father. Don't just come to church Don't just do the things Christians do. Live your life with your Father. This is the path to the blessed life. We should not only do this as individuals, but we should do this together. In the the ESV, you don't see this too well because they translate that phrase, continue steadfastly. But in the NASB and NIV, they translate it a little better. It says, devote yourselves, plural, to prayer. Devote yourselves. And I do think Paul has a communal idea in mind. From the very beginning of chapter 3, he's been talking to us as a body. He's been saying, if you all have been raised up with Christ, your all's life are hidden in God with Christ. When Christ appears, you all will appear with Him in glory. You all should put off the earthly things. You all should put on heavenly things. And now he's saying, you all, as a people, as a body, should pray together, together, together. Paul knew as well as anybody the power of praying together. And he, I do believe, is calling us to praying together here. Individual prayer is very, very, very important. We must all seek God as individuals. But we spent five months in this church talking about koinonia, and we ought to see now that God's agenda in the church is not only to connect us with Him, but to connect us with one another. And one of the main ways He connects us to one another and builds us into His body and His bride and His temple is as we pray together. As we pray together. We have fellowship times together, and that's a good thing. It's a bonding thing, isn't it? But if you stop and think about that, even secular people who don't believe in God experience that kind of bonding. Anybody can have a potluck and bond at a social level together. But when we go before the throne of God together, beloved, I believe Jesus sort of takes out His knitting needles and He knits us together in very deep and profound ways, both with one another and with Him. And so Paul is saying, pray together, pray together, pray together, because it's such an integral part of Jesus' work of of binding us together into His temple, into His body, into His bride. So we must learn the lesson, the power of praying together. As we pray together, God opens our eyes together and gives us insight into situations and into the mission that He has for us in the world. 
The SV here says, continue steadfastly, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That word watchful there literally means to stay awake. And I wish that they would translate it literally because I I think Paul means it literally here. I think Paul is saying that when we pray as a people and as individuals, we are awake to the things of the Spirit. And when we fail to pray, our eyes dim and we fall asleep to the things of the Spirit. And we see things in this earth, in our families, in the church, at work, in the world. We see them according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. But when we come before the throne of God in prayer, lift our eyes up to Christ, our eyes open and we become awake and we see things as God sees them. And then we can act with His power. We can act with His passion. We can act according to His wisdom. Beloved, this is so crucial. This is why we have to go to prayer before we go out on mission. We have to see Elk River and Otsego and Monticello and the surrounding areas in the way God sees them, not the way we see them. We cannot access His mind for this area and our relation to that in any other way but by praying together and asking Him, Father, open our eyes to see. Give us power to go according to Your Word. This week, Steve Shepard and I met and he opened up that passage for us where Elisha was surrounded by an army and he was there with his servant and the servant got really upset about this. He's like, Elisha, we're surrounded. We're history. They're they're completely around us on all sides. We have no hope here. There's me and you against all of this vast army. And Elisha just prayed, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. And specifically he said that he might see that those who are with us outnumber those who are against us. And in that moment, God opened the eyes of his servant through prayer, through a spiritual process, and allowed him to see in the Spirit that those physical troops were literally, this is not a figurative thing, this is a literally true story, literally surrounded by the spiritual forces of God on every single side, so that Elisha and his servants were surrounded by the army of God. And they were going to win. And they did win. In unbelievable odds, they won. Why did Elisha have the faith to see that and to ask that of the Lord? Because he was a man of prayer. Therefore, he was awake to the things of God. Had he not prayed, he would have been asleep to the things of God. Now listen to me. This works in your family. If you as a couple don't pray, you will not have God's vision for your family. You cannot You will fall asleep to the work of God in your family. Your eyes will be dimmed, maybe closed all the way. You might do things that are right, but they'll be according to the flesh. But if you pray, He will open your eyes and allow you to see your family as He sees your family. And then you'll be able to act in a way that's a blessing to His name and a blessing to the family. There might be pain indeed. We all know that. There's pain to be had in living together. But my point is, without prayer, we fall asleep to what God is doing in the pain. With prayer, we wake up. Let's say you're at work. Situations at work. If you fail to pray, beloved, you will not have God's insight about your workplace or about why God put you there in particular. You're not doing what you're doing for a profession on accident. That much I can tell you for sure. When I was painting, I cannot tell you, I actually shared the gospel more with people when I was a painter than since I've been a pastor. Because when I was a painter, I was interacting with people all the time, day after day after day, who didn't know Christ. And he opened up so many doors for me to share the gospel. He meant for me to be a painter for a season of my life. And wherever he's got you at, he means you to be where you're at. If you will pray, he will open your eyes. If you don't pray, you fall asleep. Your your eyes dim or they close altogether. So pray, pray, 
Pray, pray, pray. Be watchful, be awake, be alert with it. In it with thanksgiving. Pray, pray, pray. God will open your eyes and He will use your life. One more thing. Paul says in the flow of this verse that we should do all these things with thanksgiving. How I wish that we could take a whole sermon sometime and just talk about the power of thanksgiving and prayer. But let me just say very quickly that as we devote ourselves to living lives of communion with God and we do that together and our eyes become more and more open to the things of God, it is so crucial that we develop a thankful spirit and thank God for everything, everything, everything in our lives. This morning a a trial in our family came uh, to the forefront for me. Something occurred to me that hadn't occurred to me in the the previous few days and it's a kind of a heavy thing. And it kind of landed on me heavily and I felt burdened. But this morning I remembered the lesson from this verse and I just began thanking God for the trial. I began thanking Him for the things that happened and why they happened. And as I thanked Him, my whole attitude began to change. An air of optimism, an air of hope, an air of worship, an air of faith that God was going to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Beloved, I'm telling you, when you give thanks to God in the communal atmosphere of prayer, it will rock your world. It will change your life. It will turn you from a pessimist into an optimist. It will turn you from a grumbler into a thanksgiver. It will turn you from a person of, of, of the flesh into a person of faith will turn you from a person of worrying into a person of hope. So give thanks when you pray. Thank Him for everything. And I mean everything. Thank Him, thank Him, thank Him. There are some things that are very hard to thank God for. And I know that. I don't mean to make light of that. I just mean to say, it's not just here. Everywhere the Bible's saying, pray with thanksgiving. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Beloved, God knows what He's doing. This is the owner's manual for this life we're living. And He knows that if we'll be thankful, it will help us in so many ways. So as we learn to pray together, let's learn to thank God and thank God and thank God and thank God. Paul was an integral part of the early church. He was there as an eyewitness almost from the very beginning. And he watched the Holy Spirit teach the church this pattern. You go to prayer together. The Holy Spirit power comes upon you. You go out in witness. You bear fruit. And you gather back together again and worship the Lord. He, he saw it happen the first time. Well, not at Pentecost, but from very close to there. He saw it repeat again and again. He was a recipient of this kind of prayer. He was a progenitor of it. And he knows what life in Christ is about. And so he is inviting us into the pattern of life that he knew so well. And look there with me, if you will, at uh, verses 3 to 5. Look there and see what Paul asked them to pray for. He said, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This, this is amazing to me. You get the picture. Paul's writing Philippians from a prison cell. And he's in prison because he has boldly preached the Word of God and they put him in prison for it. Now he's in that prison cell writing to the church and what does he say to them? He says, pray for me. Pray for me that the Word of God might have boldness. Do you see, beloved? He understood there's no way for the Word to go out until prayers go up. And as the church, not just Paul, but the church prayed and prayed and prayed on commission together. They prayed and prayed. God poured His power out. 
You remember in the book of Acts what happened in Philippians. A great earthquake shook the place and the the doors flung open and the Word did go forth and the jailer and his whole family came to Christ and others came to Christ. Great power did go out in Philippi. But why? It's because they prayed, beloved. They prayed together. They prayed together. I cannot tell you how broken my heart is for this city. I want to see us begin winning people to Christ I want to baptize people every single week if we can. I have so much passion for us to begin boldly sharing the Word of God, but what I know is if we don't pray, it will never happen. And so let us learn to pray. Let us learn to become peoples of prayer, to devote ourselves to prayer, staying awake in it with thanksgiving. The elders are therefore calling the church to pray together during the season of Lent. It's a helpful season for us to emphasize something, but I want you to understand we have the long term in mind. This is not just about an event. It's about a way of life in Christ. In my heart in particular, I just have a heart to see an atmosphere of loving dependence develop in this church where we're just constantly praying, not out of duty or to show off or just any of those fleshly things, but just because we love our Father and we're dependent upon Him. I don't have a lot of programmatic particulars in my mind, prayer services and this and that. What I have in my mind is an atmosphere of of walking with Christ and being on mission with Christ, living in communion with Christ, receiving instruction from Him, going out in the world in, in, in His power. So the days of Lent, they're configured in various ways by different groups of, of churches. But for our purposes, all I did was I counted back 40 days from Easter so that Easter is the 40th day And what that means is that Lent for us will start this coming Wednesday on March 16th. And the 40th day will be uh, Easter. And I want to encourage you to devote yourselves to fasting and prayer during this time. I have developed two things for you. They're both out on that back table. We only have 50 of each, so please just take one for each family, okay? If you want to take one to give to another family, you're welcome to do that. But the first thing I put together was a little guide on fasting if you want to fast. Um, Fasting can be a very powerful thing, but it's something you should develop some knowledge about. So here's about four or five pages on fasting, and that's out there. And then the other thing I put together was a calendar. Uh, March is on one side, and April is on the other side. And what you have here is, is here you have a number of questions that you can ask. And for every day, there's a scripture there upon which to meditate. It's just a few verses, not a whole bunch. And the theme of all the scriptures is humility. Humility is going to be the emphasis on the, in the Easter service this year. And so we're going to meditate for 40 days together on humility. And I want to encourage you as individuals to take these calendars and read those scriptures and pray and just ask the Lord to teach you to be a person of prayer. Pray for the life of this church. I want to encourage you as families to gather together as often as you can at least once a week and more if you can. And just pray over these scriptures and learn the power of praying together. I want to encourage you as community groups, if you're going to meet any time in these four, 40 days, please dedicate a little bit more time to prayer than you normally do. Just learn the power of praying the Word of God together. And then finally, we're going to put together at least one service in these 40 days as a church where we'll gather together and just pray and sing and, and seek the Lord together. On Easter week, we're going to have three services this year instead of the two we normally have. We'll have the, the Thursday service that we normally have here in the Hanky. The Monday, Thursday. This year we're going to add a, a Good Friday service. And my heart for that service is simply to gather and pray together. We'll probably do it in someone's home unless there's uh, enough desire. And then we'll need a bigger place. 
But we just want to gather and pray together. After we're done praying for whoever wants to do it, we're going to watch the Passion of the Christ together and just, just spend time worshiping the Lord for what He's done. And then, and then obviously on Easter Sunday, we will gather here to worship the Lord for raising from the dead. All along in these 40 days, our passion, beloved, is for us to pray and pray and pray and pray together as a body to a depth, to an extent that we have not prayed before. And then after Easter, we always have the missions week. And I'll bring a message that week about local missions and what the Lord might be doing in the life of this church. So at the end of the day, what this is all about is just calling you to pray, calling you to to live in dependence upon our Father together. And let's pray now. Lord, I give you my thanks and my praise for who you are and for what you're doing. I give you my weak offering of this sermon, Father, and ask you to use my weakness to display your strength. I pray that you would develop in us a passion to be near to you, to speak with you at all times, and to do that both alone and together. I pray that you would give us wisdom and power and alertness to your movement in our families and in our community groups and in this church and in the city and in the world. I pray that you'd give us power for mission. God, please teach us to pray. That is the beginning and the end of my heart in this, that we would just become a people who know what it means to have communion with you. I have an assurance about this, Father, from you. I know that you mean to do this. And so I give you my thanks and my praise in Jesus' great and gracious name. Amen.